the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. As we give our attention to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, and since he's sacramentally present, he's not present the way he was present in his public life. He's sacramentally present so that we could all have him to ourselves. Now he is glorified and he transcends space and time. He's using his divine power. And it's all about loving us. And the Eucharist is a way God rigged so that we do have him all to ourselves. And using an idea of St. John Paul, the Eucharist is also about his desire to be with us. We want to be with him, but his desire to be with us far exceeds, infinitely exceeds, to be accurate, our desire to be with him. And we really do want to be with him. And what we do is, until we go to heaven and see him face to face, we literally put words in his sacramental mouth. That's the purpose of the gospel. And the words we're going to put in his mouth, because they are eternal, and they always speak to us. That's the miracle of the gospel. The gospel, within the broad parameters of the teaching of the church, Jesus speaks to us through the language of the gospel. And we repeat these celebrated words. Jesus said to him, Thomas, that is, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And this meditation, from the perspective of St. Jose Maria, Opus Dei is a family, and the father, canonically called the prelate, is so special because our father, St. Jose Maria, had a very special role in Opus Dei that he received that divine message and he also, with a special grace, was a witness of the fatherhood of God and he himself said that he has a heart about himself, a heart of a father and a mother. And the present father, the prelate, also has received that gift. I saw it with my own eyes. And what we want to do is contemplate our Lord from the perspective of St. Jose Maria. And let's do some prayerful contemplating. Why do I read, I am the way? 
because the teachings of St. Jose Maria enhance, magnify those words of Jesus. Through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, he magnifies that way within that broad way that leads to holiness, God has given St. Jose Maria a specific pathway within the pathway that Jesus announced in his last evening with his disciples, with his apostles. Let's reflect a little the very special apparition of the Blessed Mother her apparition in Fatima for six months on the 13th of each month, starting on May 13th, ending on October 13th. All sorts of prophecies that have all come true. Two of the three visionaries are canonized saints. They died as little kids. The other one died in her 90s soon to canonize her, but I'm morally certain she's a saint as well. And I, I bring that up just to see St. Josemarie in the right light. Just for the record, the Holy Spirit moves the church to canonize saints, and that's an infallible statement of the church. There's no error in that announcement. Beatification is not infallible. Canonization is. And it is the teaching in the church that we imitate all the saints. Why? Because the saint is the life of Jesus incarnated in an individual. I think I could speak for you as well. You're less interested in the sanctity of Saint Jacinta and Saint Francisco than the message they receive from the Blessed Mother. What you're really interested, what I'm interested is what they heard from Our Lady. And their sanctity is very important. That will serve for our edification. We can learn from their sanctity, the way they prayed, the way they bore their cross, the way they bore persecution, the way they loved the Blessed Mother, that's very important, but I would say it's secondary. In this case, since it was such a cosmic and apocalyptic divine intervention, I don't mean ap apocalyptic in the sense of the end of the world as much as something that radically changes history and predicts the tensions between the forces of good and evil in the 20th and 21st century. And so I'm interested in that message and what Our Lady wants us to do in order to promote that kingdom. That's their charm. There's a lot of holy people. We don't underestimate that. We don't sneeze at that. But you and I are not going to lay down our lives to follow as much as holiness is such a colossal intervention of the Holy Spirit. 
You're not going to give your life to your saintly grandmother. Okay, I'm going to follow her spirituality because she's so holy. I'm going to imitate her, learn from her, but you know, I'm not going to lay down my life. If she receives a message from our Lord and is verified by the church, that's a different story. That message I'm going to take seriously, though being a saint helps, it's secondary. And I would say, and I say this very respectfully, St. Jose Maria in the seminary, he set a certain tone, already had a reputation of holiness, special graces, and he put all-nighters in prayer, all-afternooners in prayer, hang out at a shrine of Our Lady, perform demanding penances. But for 10 years plus, he was just, just, quote-unquote, a holy young seminarian and, and then a holy young priest to be imitated, to be edified. But you're not going to change someone's life in terms of changing their plans or following him or becoming a disciple. These young men and women put themselves totally at the disposal of what we call the spirit of Opus Dei, which is to become a saint in the middle of the world and change the world. Why do they do it? I mean, we know why they do it academically, but let's pray about it in the presence of Albert. After 10 years, a little bit over 10 years, it started when he was a teenager and he saw those footprints in the snow. Those footprints spoke to him. Those were life-changing. The footprints were a medium or a sacramental of a message from God. It wasn't a full message, but it was a message. I have something for you. I'm going to call you to something. So his reaction was, well, I'll be as available as possible. I'll become a priest. That was his reaction. He didn't see priesthood as an end. He saw God wants something, so I will become a priest. He made his dad cry. He probably rattled his father and mother because he's the oldest son. They were counting on him. They had other plans for him, but being saintly parents, whatever God wants. Those were footprints of a Carmelite who had given his life to God himself. So around those Fatima apparitions, he had that locution. He was going to be an architect, probably get married, start a family. Well, that changed. He's going to be a priest. And he's praying up a storm for over 10 years. On October 2nd, 1928, in a retreat amid deep prayer, as they would say in modern parlance, he's blown away. He, he spontaneously drops to his knees. And he's interiorly and exteriorly shaken. In the face of what he saw, he was frightened. Always maybe immediately frightened in front of the, I would say, preternatural. 
We don't know the details. We do and we don't. But he was just heavily inspired by a bright illumination, a light that he had never received before. And I would say he, he said, I saw the work, I saw Bastet, he saw Christ being brought to the middle of the world in a way that he was not there before. And he was shaken because this was kind of unprecedented. When I was younger, much younger, when I would hear, well, he was 26 years of age with a good sense of humor, I said, well, he was old enough. When I heard that in college, I said, he's older than me. I hear it now. Basically, he's an infant. You know, he's a rookie. When I see a 26-year-old priest, I presume that, you know, he's, he's a rookie and he needs seasoning and needs a little bit of coaching. As they say in Spanish, he needs un cura mayor. He needs an older coach. And... Um, I've been Cura Mayor for a number of guys. Can you be my Cura Mayor? I don't know how to take that. I take it that I'm getting old. And so that's what he was, and he was destitute. He wasn't just poor, he was destitute. And what did he see? I mean, I say it's unprecedented because up to that point, let's just use an example of St. John Bosco. He was a great athlete in the 19th century. Tight roper, juggled, did backflips, good soccer player, pretty robust, physically strong man. And he received an inspiration to help delinquent boys get back on the straight and narrow and give them an education in some kind of trade. So he founded trade schools in Italy, beginning in Turin. And he was the chaplain and the spiritual director. And he came up with a way of educating these young men. He was a man ahead of his time. No, you don't physically discipline them. You don't punish them. You work with them. And you, you serve them as a father. All right? That is the typical way that God would found an institution, a congregation, an order. You start, you educate teenage girls. You are called to start orphanages. You are called to serve the sick. Or Mother Teresa, you're called to serve the poorest of the poor. Okay, those are specific lights, specific calling. St. Josemaria didn't have that. It was unprecedented. It's a reiteration of what our Lord did with his disciples when he ascended into heaven. There was no specific institution, no specific organization. Get the gospel, begin in Jerusalem, work in concentric circles. It's a monpa operation, at least ostensibly, you know, one after another, family, friends. That's how our Lord got started. Go to Samaria, and then just go to the ends of the earth. And I want everybody to be a recipient of this. So for the first 300 years, it was the age of the laity. Just the first history of the church book was written by God. It's called the New Testament. The epistles of Paul, Peter, James, Jude, John. 
the Acts of the Apostles. It's hard to discern who's in the hierarchy. It's not, you know, putting priests in second place. It's, hey, we're out to evangelize here. And it's mon You meet one person, then you meet another person, you meet another person. And, you know, something that is very much part of the spirit of Opus Dei, one sociologist wrote a book trying to figure out how in 300 years this mon operation you're not allowed to have a church because you get killed as a capital offense. There's no churches, no temples, no power centers. You had RCIA, and that was run by lay people in houses. You had masses in secrecy in people's houses. You had meditations in circles. They didn't call it that, but that's what you had. And they'd give you a few years before you joined the faith because you, gotta, you had to know what you're getting into. You know, chances are you're going to get tortured to death. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk to your husband about it. And then, you know, let me know. But, you know, take your time. Be free. You know, you're not obligated to, you know, put yourself through the mill. And what this author says, we don't need him to say this. By dint and by evangelizing one-on-one, he says that will be felt eventually in an exponential way. But anyway, back to St. Jose Maria. So he sees in this light on his retreat a way, which falls in line with this way, of evangelizing the entire world. We could say that the timing is off. Just as the timing was bad when our Lord cut his disciples loose, because his disciples found themselves in a similar world that we find ourselves, afflicted by moral relativism and a culture of death that has not ended, is very much vibrant now. And when Opus Dei was seen by St. Jose Maria, it was on the heels of an atheistic regime, which, which we call communism, that would take the life of millions of people, astronomical number, and on the heels of a world war, on the eve of the most virulent religious persecution in the history of Spain, a virulent persecution in Mexico, and on the remote eve, not all that remote, of the genocide of Nazi Germany in World War II, and the very remote eve of our own practical culture of death, soft atrocities, but atrocities nevertheless, whether it's assisted suicide or abortion or euthanasia or terrorist bombings, whatever it is. And that's and this insignificant person, at least humanly speaking, no one's insignificant. All right, I want you to change the world. Of course, the guy's going to be scared. And what is the message we're praying about? We know the message. I want you to change the world. I want to be in the world in a way that I've never been there before. I'm not going to consign you to what is divinely impossible if I say preach the gospel everywhere it could work. And our Lord never qualifies. He says, well, you know, as long as we get out of the Roman Empire, you're going to do it. It never said that. It's unqualified. And St. Jose Maria saw in this light was change the world, but this light included another light 
if the laity strive not for splendid mediocrity, priests as well, you know, splendid mediocrity, you know, commandments and devotions, but not sanctity, if they strive to be other Christs, they'll change the world. And they're called to change the world. So there's a whole shift that had not been the case for over a millennia. From having a backseat, wrongfully so, are now the front runners, the vanguard of the church's work of evangelization. It's not, I don't mean to, you know, dismiss myself from responsibility of evangelizing, but uh, my job's challenging too. I've got to walk the walk and inspire lay people and nourish them. And I could use a trendy word without a trendy meaning empower them with the word of God and the sacraments so that they have enough spiritual fuel to start affecting their family, their workplace. And so these people, these first followers of St. Jose Maria, who actually laid down their lives for, not for him, but they didn't lay down their lives for him. They laid down their lives for our Lord through the message he had. They believed and he after many years, he said, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful to God that the first ones believed they actually had faith in this message, that it came from God, and they actually trusted this sinner. You know, the Blessed Alvaro's, for example. And, and just to give it a little perspective, he never got it right because before the Second Vatican Council, this was very, very progressive. The hairdresser called to evangelize as much as the archbishop? Well, that's what he taught. And so, you know, they labeled him as a heretic. You know, use those words, it's kind of strong. It's, you know, in our age of political correctness, you don't use those words too much, but they did use it pretty liberally with him, against him. And... Uh, that you don't have to join the Carmelites or religious order to be a great saint. You can be married and have kids if God calls you to have kids. You can be a camp driver. You're, you're called just to be as holy as John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or you know, in our case, Mother Teresa, whoever we pick. You don't have to move out of your place of work. You don't have to join anything. You don't have to sign up for anything. You can do that. So that was that didn't go over very big. But anyway, with the you know decades later the. Second Vatican Council endorsed that. And so, you know, Cardinal was trying to be nice. St. Jose Maria says he was a blunt Aragonez, you know. And uh, I don't know what would be comparable to a blunt Aragonez. I don't know, maybe a Chicagoan in comparison to someone from Carbondale. I don't know. Uh, so, uh, Cardinal comes, you know, you may perhaps you know the anecdote. Well, Monsignor, congratulations. The church in a solemn way has proclaimed that the laity should consecrate the world to Christ. I'll leave you with this. And St. Jose said, Your eminence, with all due respect, the lay person won't consecrate anything. 
In fact, they'll be swept away by the world unless they are contemplatives, true contemplatives, true people who are dialoguing with Christ all the time, truly united to Christ. Only that way can they change the world. Otherwise, they'll be swept. Who knows what his eminence said? Okay, whatever. Thanks, Monsignor. I'm sure he lightened it up. And so I think the resolution we want to make here, and, you know, freedom in following Christ, but I would say our common steady diet, secondarily because he's a saint. Secondarily doesn't mean it's inconsequential. Secondarily. But primarily because his writings are an unpacking of the light of October 2nd. And it is the, the, the handbook to get on that way that Jesus talks about. And that's endorsed in a solemn way as well. Pope Benedict, in his exhortation on the word of God of a number of years ago, used St. Josemir as an example of contemplating the gospel in the middle of the world. So the Holy Spirit is giving some, us encouragement. So let's make a resolution. And we go to the Blessed Virgin Mary. We ask for her prayer of intercession. So we take full advantage of this instrument of following our Lord, whom we call our Father, St. Josemar. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Holy Mary, hope, hand me of the Lord. Amen.